Hear the word of the Lord. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray with me. Heavenly Father, we are really, really happy to be here today. We're happy because we know that Through faith in your son, Jesus Christ, we belong to you and we are the children of God. We're happy, Lord, because we know that through faith in Jesus Christ, we are new creations. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Father, we're happy today because we know that through faith in Jesus Christ, we have a future and we have a hope. We know that because Christ died for our sins and rose for our justification that our sins no longer have any claim on us and even death itself is no longer to be feared. So God, we are happy to be here today. God, we're also happy to be here today because of your holy word. We know that your word is true and it's righteous and it's altogether good. We know that your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our paths. God, we know that apart from your grace and apart from your word, we would be walking in darkness, stumbling around, not making sense out of life, and quite frankly, making a mess out of our lives. And yet, God, you would have us know you and learn from you and walk in the light and experience joy and blessing forever. And so today, God, we want to say we are happy to be here. We're happy to belong to you. We're thankful for your grace in our lives. And God, we ask that you would use your word through the preaching of it now to speak into each and every one of our hearts. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. Please be seated. Follow me. Those are the words that Jesus used to call his very first disciples 2,000 years ago. And they must have resonated deep within the souls of these men because against all odds, they actually got up and they followed him. And these are the words that initiated the movement that would become Christianity and spread to the four corners of the earth. And these are the words that Jesus is still using today. Through his holy word, his voice is still calling out to men, women, and children on every single continent. Follow me. It's a clear call, it demands a decision, 
It forces your hand. Every single person who hears those words from the lips of Jesus is obligated to respond. Because you either follow him and obey, or you don't. You can't be indifferent. To just sit back and be indifferent and do nothing is to make a decision. It's a decision to disobey Jesus and to resist his call. And so, there is, in a very real sense, in which each and every one of us can locate ourselves in the text of today's sermon. We are like the four fishermen who have had Jesus pay us a visit, look us in the eyes, and say to us, follow me. And what we do in response to that call from Jesus Christ is the single most important decision you will make in your entire life. And so there's a lot at stake for us this morning with the things that we're about to talk about. These powerful words of our Savior, along with the couple of verses that are right above them, constitute the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. In the previous verses that we covered last Sunday, Jesus was baptized by John in the Jordan River, and he did that in part to identify with us sinners that he came to save. He also was immediately driven into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, and he stood there in the place of Adam, our first parent, and in the place of Israel, and he succeeded where they all failed. And guess what? Where you and I fail as well. He resisted the temptation, and Jesus achieved the first of many victories over Satan and the kingdom of darkness. But now here at verse 14, things have shifted. Jesus is now beginning his public ministry. It's his Galilean ministry, called such because it takes place in and around the Sea of Galilee, which is up in the north of Israel. Jerusalem's more in the south. So Jesus launches his ministry here in the north. And as he begins his ministry, we as students of the scriptures and as the the readers of this story that the, the author Mark is telling us, we can begin to answer questions like this. What was the ministry of Jesus like? And what exactly did he do? Now Mark is going to give us a multifaceted view of the ministry of Jesus in the pages to come. He's going to reveal to us Jesus, the miracle worker and healer. He's going to reveal to us Jesus, the exorcist who drives demons out of people. He's going to reveal to us, of course, Jesus, the substitute for our sins, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of God's people. But notice with me this morning that as he begins his public ministry, Mark draws our attention to Jesus as both the preacher and the the disciple maker. We see Jesus the preacher in verses 14 and 15. Let's reread these verses and then we'll think about it together. Mark writes this, he says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming, that word can be translated preaching, the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in The gospel. So here we have Jesus, the preacher. He's preaching the gospel of God. He's proclaiming the gospel of God. 
But before we talk about that, don't, don't pass over or gloss over the little note that we get at the start of verse 14 about the guy who's been a major character in chapter 1, this man named John. Look again at verse 14. It's only five words here. And it says this. Now after John was arrested. So Mark is sort of time stamping here for us the beginning of his telling of Jesus' ministry. It's after John had been arrested. Well, who is John? John is often called John the Baptist. Okay? And he was the forerunner of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. He's the one who came to prepare the people for the ministry of Jesus. But now John is in prison. John has run his course. John's ministry has been completed. John has fulfilled the calling for which God gave him. His ministry is closing and Jesus is now coming to the fore. But what becomes of John? Well, he's arrested here. And as many of you know, later he's actually going to be beheaded in prison. And we have to ask ourselves, why? Why is this the outcome of John's life? What did John do? What was his great crime that locked him in prison and ultimately cost him his life? John wasn't a criminal. Okay, he wasn't out doing smash and grab robberies. Okay, he wasn't stealing from people. He wasn't violent. He was a peaceful, righteous man. So he's not breaking the law. He's not, he's not committing crimes. So why was he arrested? Why was he executed? Well, we could say it this way. This happened to John because John faithfully served God. This happened to John because John faithfully discharged the ministry that God had given to him. And so friends, it would be great for us to remind ourselves this morning from this text that faithful ministry always leads to some opposition. Again, faithful ministry always leads to some opposition. Oftentimes, in places like the United States, where we're allowed to have mega churches and television programs and radio ministries, we think that faithful ministry necessarily leads to comfort and success. And at times, it could lead to those things, in part. But faithful ministry will always lead to some opposition. The kingdom of darkness stands in opposition to the kingdom of God. Satan hates when good, faithful gospel ministry is being done. He hates it with every ounce of his being. He marshals all of his strength and all of his power and comes against faithful ministry. And oftentimes his opposition comes in the face, or in the form rather, of persecution, like John the Baptist was facing. Now, persecution can take many forms. It could look like this. It could look like being slandered and maligned by people. It could be uh, you experiencing violence at the hands of people. It could certainly include arrest or even death, as was the case with John. But friends, it is no sign that you're doing great ministry if you face no opposition and only receive praise from the world around us. That's no sign that you're doing faithful ministry. In fact, listen to the words of our Lord Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in Luke 6, 26. Have you ever wrestled with this verse? Here's what Jesus says. Woe to you. He's pronouncing a woe on these people. He says, woe to you when what? 
When all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. That's heavy. Because I don't know about you, but I want people to speak well of me. Right? I want to have a good reputation. I want to be liked by people. I don't like the thought of people saying nasty things about me or being mean and and cruel and cutting to me. But Jesus says, you don't want that. that. That's what the people were doing to the false prophets. And the reason why the people were only speaking positively to the false prophets is because the false prophets only told them what they wanted to hear. The false prophets were the ones who would not stand up and confront people in their sin and call them to righteousness and holiness and repentance before God. And so, of course, the people loved them. They're telling me everything I want to hear. They're just reinforcing the things I already want to do. But for true prophets, of whom John the Baptist, according to Jesus, is the greatest there ever was, they're going to stand up for righteousness. And oftentimes, that's going to involve telling people what they don't want to hear. And then persecution comes. Now persecution is one of the tactics that the devil uses to try to discourage us from doing faithful ministry. And it's a strong one. Because you're probably like me. You don't want people to hate you. You want people to love you. You want people to talk nice about you. You don't want your coworkers or your classmates or the people on your sports teams or your neighbors or your family members to say awful things about you or to come against you or to oppose you. None of us want that. And Satan knows that. So he's like, I can, I can bring persecution into your life and guess what? That will cause you to be set aside. You won't be effective for the ministry. You'll take the light that Jesus intends for you to shine and you're just going to stick it underneath the bed. And so the enemy knows that and he comes against us. But friends, here's what we've got to see in this text. You've got to notice that persecution... And gospel progress are going hand in hand here. Just as John the Baptist gets arrested and it looks like, oh my gosh, there's a stop to what God's doing here. Jesus enters the scene. And he begins preaching the gospel with power. And he begins calling disciples unto himself. And the kingdom of God begins marching on through Jesus' ministry And so we notice here that again, persecution and gospel progress are going hand in hand. And friends, it's not just here. If you start looking at the early church, we see the exact same thing happening there. In Acts chapter 7, we come to the story of Stephen, the first martyr of the church. Here's this young man. He's full of the spirit of God. He's He's prophetic, he's powerful, he's confronting the religious establishment of his day and he's just calling people to trust in Jesus and they want nothing to do with it. And they're so infuriated, they kill him. They stone him to death. And then you get to chapter eight. Here's verse one. It says, and Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. And you go, oh my gosh, this is horrible. The gospel's getting stopped here. Saul of Tarsus and these others are persecuting Christians. They're arresting them. They're stopping things. But but verse four goes on to say this, the very next verse. Now those who were scattered 
went about preaching the word. And what you find is that now disciples are being made in other communities and other nations and other places and churches get planted and the gospel is spreading. And so through the persecution of God's holy ones, the gospel progresses. And if you've ever studied church history, and I know some of you have, we find that this is the pattern consistently over and over and over again. In fact, even when you think about our own nation's history, what was it that caused people to first cross the Atlantic and come to North America? Religious persecution. People not feeling like they had the capacity and the freedom to worship God according to the scriptures and according to their consciences. And so they fled and they came across the Atlantic. And how many millions upon millions upon millions of people have come to faith in Jesus Christ in the last four or five hundred years because the gospel came across the Atlantic. So friends, I want to just encourage us this morning. Because we're living in a moment, a cultural moment, where it feels like we as Christians have the crosshairs on us of the culture. Right? It's like they're looking down the scope of the rifle and the crosshairs are on who? It's on Christians and the Christian church. I just want to tell you, friends, don't be discouraged. Don't let that discourage you. Persecution and gospel progress go hand in hand and God knows what he's doing. And he's sent all of us, he's raised us up, he's called us to live in this moment for such a time as this. And so we must be courageous and bold and above all, faithful. So our Lord and Savior Jesus comes to Galilee and he comes as a preacher. He's proclaiming the gospel of God. Now, this is the second time that Mark has used this really important word. It's the word gospel which we know means good news. In verse 1, Mark says it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And here in verse 14, he calls it the gospel of God. Now, the Greek word here translated of God is in the genitive case, which means absolutely nothing to any of us here, right? But it's significant, so just bear with me for a moment. The genitive case denotes possession. Okay, in English, we use words like my or your or theirs to denote possession. So if I say this is my Bible, it means this belongs to me. It's a possessive thing. If I say, Eric, this is your Bible, I'm saying it belongs to him. If this is their Bible, well, you have to fight over it because I've only got one. But it denotes possession, belonging, something that is possessed. And Mark here is saying that the gospel, the good news, that message belongs to God. This is the gospel of God. It's his message. It's his good news that he is sharing with the world. But the reason why in verse 1 he can also call it the gospel of Jesus Christ is because Jesus is the one through whom God's good news comes into the world. And through the next 16 chapters... Mark is going to tell us exactly how. So here is Jesus. He's preaching the gospel. And we should pay very careful attention to the gospel that Jesus preached. And I want us to ask this question to consider this morning. What do we learn about the gospel according to Jesus? First is this. We learn here that the gospel is 
news to be announced. Mark says that Jesus comes proclaiming the gospel, and then he's going to tell us what he says. Saying, this is again in verse 15 now, saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Notice that in sharing the gospel, Jesus is announcing something. Jesus is declaring something. He's just delivering news about what God is up to in the world. He's going to tell us and declare to us the good things that God is doing. Namely, that God's kingdom has come. It has arrived. Now, in the Old Testament, the Jewish people were looking forward to the arrival of the kingdom of God. The Jews had spent hundreds of years in captivity. They were a discouraged people. They had experienced silence for 400 years. God had not sent them a prophet to share anything with them. And the Jews were looking forward to the day when God would come. And God would judge all of their enemies who had treated them so cruelly. And God would exert his rule and his reign over the entire earth. And now here comes Jesus of Nazareth, 30 years old. Seemingly out of nowhere. And he declares and he announces to crowds of people. He says, guess what? The kingdom of God is here. The time of waiting is over. The moment you've been waiting for has arrived. And after the ministry and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, we all are going to have a much clearer understanding of the good news of what God was doing through the arrival of his kingdom. The Apostle Paul, who's on the other side of the cross and the resurrection and writing to the church at Galatia, offers us this take on this moment. Look at how he announces the good news with more detail. This is Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. Paul writes this, he says, But when the fullness of time had come, notice the same language as what Jesus is saying here. Jesus says, the time is fulfilled. Paul writes, when the fullness of time had come. Okay, at the exact right moment, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Friends, this is what this historic moment brought about. God sent his son, Jesus, into the world to redeem sinners and make us God's children, sons and daughters of God. I mean, that's good news. That's incredible news. This is what Jesus is announcing This is what Jesus is declaring, and this is what Jesus came to do. But we have to ask ourselves, how do we actually become sons and daughters of God? That's great that Jesus is announcing the kingdoms available. That's great that Jesus came and died on the cross and rose from the grave to make people children of God. But how do we actually experience that? How do we enter the kingdom of God? Answer, repent. And believe in the gospel. Do you see it there in verse 15? Jesus says, the kingdom of God is here, it's at hand. And therefore, repent and believe in the gospel. We've seen that the gospel is news to be announced. But we'll add to that now. That the gospel is also a summons to repent and 
believe. Now, I want us all just quickly to observe here the consistency between what John the Baptist preached in his ministry and what we find Jesus now preaching. If you go back to verse 4, we find that John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. If you jump over to Luke's gospel in Luke chapter 3 verse 8, John told the people to bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And he was telling people of the specific sins that they needed to turn from in order to be right with God. And now here comes Jesus and he does the exact same. He demands that people repent as the appropriate response to the arrival of the kingdom of God. Let's sit with that for just a moment. Jesus demands that people repent as the appropriate response to the arrival of the kingdom of God. It's worth us sitting with that for a moment because sometimes you'll hear people talk about Jesus as the friend of sinners, which of course he was. But from that, they'll move and they'll suggest that he wasn't super judgy, he was just incredibly tolerant, etc. And they'll tell us how we need to be tolerant like Jesus. We just need to live and let live. We need to not talk about sin. We don't have to bring that up. Let's just downplay sin. We just need to love people like Jesus did. Friends, of course we need to love people. Of course we should be gracious and we should be kind. But whatever we might say about the tolerance of Jesus, the one thing Jesus would not tolerate was sin. Elsewhere, Jesus would warn that unless you repent, you will perish. At the outset of his preaching ministry, his first command to us is what? Repent. Jesus viewed repentance as a non-negotiable response. It is required response to the gospel message. You must repent. Now, this trips some people up who have grown up in Protestant churches like this one. If you know anything about the Reformation in which Protestants broke away from the Roman Catholic Church, you'll know that one of the five solas of the Reformation is sola fide, or faith alone. And the Reformers rightly taught, and all faithful gospel preachers still rightly teach, that we are saved by grace through faith alone. Faith without attaching any works to it. It's just by our faith and our trust in Jesus. And so how then can we also say now that repentance is required in order to be saved? Here's the answer. Because Jesus said so. I know you're like, yeah, I see that, but that's not very helpful. Okay, we'll add another thing to it. But if Jesus says that, that's always a great place to at least start. Jesus says so. But here's the answer. Faith and repentance are like two sides of the same coin. Faith and repentance are like two sides of the same coin. Okay, repentance is turning around on the path that I was walking down, which was a path that actually was leading me away from God. Where I was rejecting God and I was living in my own sin and I was living in rebellion. Repentance is saying, I'm going to turn away from that. I'm going to turn around from that path and I'm going to let go of the sins that I was living in that were separating me from God. Faith is taking hold of Jesus as my Savior and my Lord. 
Now, here's the thing that we have to understand. You cannot cling to sin and to Jesus at the same time. It's impossible. I cannot hold on to a life of sin and rebellion against God and yet hold on to him at the exact same time. Let me try to illustrate this for us today. We live at the beach, so this might work. Imagine that you're at the ocean and you decide that you're going to take a swim out to a buoy. And the buoy happens to be really, really far on this particular day, but you still got your summer bod, you've been working out, you've been eating well, you got a great night of sleep, so you say, I'm going to do it, I'm going to go for it. So you get in the water and you just start swimming out toward this buoy. And you're going and you're going and you're going and all of a sudden, you find yourself totally exhausted in the ocean. And you look back and you, and you think, I'm going to just go back, but you look back and you realize, oh my gosh, shore is actually a lot further than the buoy is. So you turn back and you realize, like, I've, got, I've got 40 more yards to go. But I've got to just give it everything I've got. So you just do it. You go and you swim and you swim and you swim and you barely make it to the buoy. And when you get there, you just grab onto this buoy out there and you're holding onto it for dear life. You're fatigued. You're out of breath. Your muscles are exhausted and you're just holding on. And two minutes turns into five minutes. And five minutes turns into ten minutes. And ten minutes turns into fifteen minutes. And finally, you catch the attention of the lifeguard who's been sitting on the beach. And the lifeguard realizes, oh, there's something wrong. This person's been stuck at that buoy for 15 minutes. So the lifeguard dives into the water and swims all the way out there to you and comes up to you and wants to bring you back in. And he gets to you and he asks you, are you okay? You say to him, no, I can't get back in. And he says, okay, I'll help you. Now think about this. In order for you to be saved... You have to let go of the buoy and you have to take hold of the lifeguard. If you continue clinging to the buoy, you cannot grab hold of the lifeguard and guess what? You will be stuck and you will perish. Similarly, again, as I said a moment ago, I, I, cannot, I cannot exercise faith in Jesus while I am holding on to my sin. I have to be willing to let this life go. Let this pursuit go. Let this direction in this course of life go in order to begin a new direction and a new course of life and to actually take hold of Jesus Christ. So I cannot exercise faith unless I repent. But friends, it actually goes even a step deeper than this. Because repentance itself is actually a demonstration of my faith. Or you could say it this way. Repentance is faith's first step. Going back to this lifeguard illustration, let's imagine ourselves in the water again. You're holding on to this buoy and you're not going to let go and the lifeguard's sitting there in the water and you're yelling at him, save me. And he says, okay, let go and grab onto me. And you say, no. And then you say, save me. And he says, okay, let go of the buoy and grab onto me. And you say, no. And this is just going on back and forth. And then he looks at you and he says, Look into my eyes. He says, trust me. Let go of the buoy and just grab onto me. I'll swim you back in. Question. If I won't let go of the buoy, do I actually trust the lifeguard? Of course not. That's what's going on there. Because if I really trust that he's capable of getting me back to the shore safely, I will have no problem in letting go of the buoy and grabbing on. 
So my unwillingness to let go of the buoy is evidence that I do not, in fact, trust the lifeguard can save me. And in the same way, my unwillingness to repent and turn away is evidence that I don't actually trust Jesus is the Messiah and can save me. And conversely, the moment that I let go of that life and I repent and grab onto Jesus, that that act itself is demonstrating I do trust. Because it's my faith in Jesus that caused me to be willing to let go of this and grab on to that. And so, repentance and faith are like two sides of the same coin. And Jesus tethers them together in his command here. He says, repent and believe the gospel. So, back to our question from a moment ago. How do I become a child of God? Or how do I enter the kingdom of God? Answer, I repent and I believe in the gospel. I believe in the good news of what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. Now, we need to see one last thing about this idea before we move on to these four fishermen. Both words, repent and believe, in the Greek, emphasize an ongoing activity. So we're not to think of repentance or faith as once-off actions. Like, oh yeah, back in 2009, I repented and I exercised faith, and that was it. I'm just done. I had that moment, I repented and expressed faith, and I'm good now. I'm in relationship with God. We are called to live a life of repentance. It is a direction that we're headed. It's a pursuit that we're following. We are constantly turning from our sins every time we find them. And every time we see them, we just turn from them. And as it relates to faith, family, listen, we are constantly expressing and re-expressing our faith and our trust in Jesus Christ. You could say it this way, that we are steadily believing in and trusting in Jesus with every new day and with every new change or every new challenge that we face in our lives. That's faith and repentance. It's ongoing activity. Yes, there's a moment in time where it begins, but it never ever ends until faith gives way to sight. And so how might we convey that idea? Or how might we articulate this idea of this ongoing pursuit? What's a word that we could add to our understanding of the gospel that makes this really, really clear for us? Well, how about the word follow? The gospel is a summons to repent, believe, and follow Jesus. And this leads us to the rest of our passage, where now we see Jesus, not the preacher anymore, but rather Jesus, the disciple maker. Look again at verse 16. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Sometimes in life, you have a day that completely changes everything. Maybe it's the day you meet your future spouse. Or the day your first child is born. Or the day that your family moved and uprooted you and started your life over somewhere else. Or maybe it's the day that some incredible opportunity lands in your lap. Friends, this was that day for these four fishermen in Galilee. Jesus calls as his first, two, or his first disciples two sets of brothers, 
all of whom are fishermen. Now you should know that the fact that Jesus calls them to follow him was extremely out of the ordinary. At this time and place, a rabbi never recruited his students. Rather, students would make the decision that they want to attach themselves to this particular rabbi or master. And then they would actually apply to become his disciples. Much like you and I might find a college or a university or a trade school that we want to go to. We really want to be a part. We want to be educated there. So we submit an application. And then it's up to that school to decide, are we going to accept you into our program? But here comes Jesus. And he walks up to these guys and he just says to them, follow me. Get up and follow me. Why would Jesus choose to do it this way? Don't you think it might have something to do with who Jesus is calling? He's calling fishermen. Later, he's going to call tax collectors and prostitutes. What I'm trying to suggest to you is that when you think about the people that Jesus is calling, he's calling the type of people who would have never considered themselves candidates for discipleship under a rabbi. They weren't part of the right families. They didn't have formal theological training. They weren't the most upstanding or moral citizens that you could find in the nation of Israel. They were people who likely thought to themselves, I couldn't possibly be used to serve God in meaningful ways. And yet Jesus has a habit of coming to people just like that and inviting them to be his disciples. And I wonder if any among us have struggled to feel worthy of being used by God to serve him in meaningful ways. Or even worse, just struggled to feel worthy to even come to God at all. Friend, you don't need to work on your credentials to strengthen your application and then hope that Jesus will accept you. If you can hear his voice calling out to you this morning through the pages of sacred scripture and into your heart saying, follow me, then guess what? You can have a seat at the master's table. He's he's offering it to you. He's calling out to you. And if you hear that voice in your heart, you are being offered a place with Jesus. So Jesus calls these four fishermen. They hear the call and they follow him. And through their experiences, we learn the essence of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Notice that the calling has two sides to it. On one hand, it's leaving behind a former way of life. And on the other hand, it's entering into a new way of life. Look at verse 17 where we see this. Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. Being a follower of Jesus involves leaving behind a former way of life. It says that they dropped their nets. That was their way of life. That was the life they were accustomed to. It was their former way of life. Following Jesus does require sacrifice and change. It's a leaving of an old way of life or an old orientation of life. That's what repentance means as we've talked about. It's turning from an old way of life to a new way of life. It's no longer living for the here and now. It's no longer living your life merely on an earthly or human plane. Where all that matters is going out and making some money 
raising a family, and maybe having some fun along the way. These men left what was familiar to them. They left what was safe. They left what was near and dear to them. They experienced a realignment of their life's work. Okay, they were fishermen, but they're walking away from that. They also experienced a realignment of their life's relationships. James and John, we read, left their father Zebedee. Now, as a quick aside, we shouldn't hear that as, oh my gosh, these people cut off their dad and abandoned him for the rest of their lives. Jesus was not calling them to abandon their families. In fact, a few verses later, Jesus and the disciples go to Simon's house and Jesus heals Simon's mother-in-law. So they have ongoing relationship with their family. But it does mean that their relationships to their families experience a significant realignment. Jesus is Lord and our loyalty to him becomes the most important thing. So yes, make no mistake about it, following Jesus involves sacrifice. It means leaving behind a former way of life. But here's what we have to see in closing. It also means entering into a new way of life. Jesus says, I will make you become fishers of men. Notice that Jesus gives these men, and he gives to every one of his followers, a brand new vocation, a brand new calling, a brand new job to pursue in their lives. Following Jesus infuses our lives with eternal significance and purpose. Now, as followers of Jesus, we're soul winners, we're disciple makers. No longer will these brothers invest their lives in catching fish, which supplies food and money for the here and now. They're going to invest their lives catching people and bringing them into the kingdom of God, which has eternal value and benefit. Now, I'm not suggesting to you that if you say yes to Jesus or because you've already said to Jesus that you're supposed to walk away from your career and that every follower of Jesus is supposed to be involved in full-time ministry, But I am suggesting that in coming to Jesus, your vocation or calling or life's work is expanded and it's reimagined. Again, we're no longer merely working and operating on a human plane, living for the here and now. Now we're living and we're working in such a way that we're trying to make an eternal impact. We look at our life's work and we ask ourselves the question, how can I steward this in ways that serve the kingdom of God? You want your work to be a demonstration of your love of God and your love of neighbor. And now, whether you're at work or you're away from your work, you're always aiming at winning people to Jesus Christ. You've become a fisher of men. You recognize that you are a part of God's kingdom and you can't help but want to invite other people to enter into the kingdom of God by telling them the good news. You could say that in a sense, the calling of these first four disciples in Mark chapter 1 is an illustration of what it looks like to repent and believe in Jesus. When they heard the words of Jesus, follow me, they left a former way of life and they entered into a brand new one. When they heard this, they had no idea what this would lead to but they were in for the ride of their lives. Unfortunately, there are plenty of people who self-identify as Christians, but know nothing of what we're talking about here this morning. They know nothing of living a life of repentance and daily following after and trusting in Jesus. 
They think that they're Christians because they've agreed with a handful of doctrinal propositions. God exists. Jesus died on the cross. The Bible is the word of God. And they go, yeah, I can check off those boxes. I believe that. And therefore I know God and I'm saved and I'm going to heaven. Friends, the devil believes all of those doctrinal propositions. In fact, one could argue the devil has clearer theology and doctrine than any of us. He has no doubt in his mind whether or not God is real. He knows that matter of fact. He has no doubt about the identity of Jesus Christ. He has no doubt about the authority of God's word. He believes all of that. That's not saving faith. Saving faith is certainly not less than believing those things, but it is more. Saving faith is the kind of faith that the devil doesn't demonstrate. Saving faith is turning away from your rebellion against the Lord, which is repentance, and looking to Jesus as your Savior and Lord. It's following him and it's using your life to further his, his will and his kingdom in the world. And these four brothers had really no idea what they were saying yes to that day on the Sea of Galilee. They didn't know what it would ultimately mean for them. They didn't realize all that it would cost or all that they would gain. But we know. We know that they became eyewitnesses to the blind regaining their sight. And the deaf regaining their hearing. And loaves of bread and fishes being multiplied to feed the hungry. And storms being calmed on the sea. And the sick being made well. And the dead being brought back to life. And we know that they became eyewitnesses to the resurrection of the Son of God. And we know that their lives and their stories have been heard around the world for the last 2,000 years and will continue to do so until the return of Christ. What they left behind is like a candle to the sun in comparison to what they gained in saying yes to the call of Jesus Christ. And so it will be for every single person who says yes to Jesus Christ. And so in conclusion, I have to ask you today, what will it be for you? Today, Jesus, through his word, is calling out to every single one of us, follow me. Will you answer his call? Let's pray together. Father, we again thank you so much for your grace. We thank you so much for your mercy. We thank you so much for your gospel. God, it's amazing to think that at the fullness of time 2,000 years ago, when the time was just right, you sent your own son into the world to redeem those of us who had sinned and who were destined for judgment and to make us the children of God. God, we thank you that you didn't just leave us in our sin, that you didn't just leave us destined for judgment but you rescued us. Jesus, we thank you that you came to this earth 2,000 years ago, that you preached the good news of the gospel, and that you ultimately became, through your life, death, and resurrection, the essence of that good news. Jesus, thank you for loving us so much that you were willing to lay down your life for us. And Jesus, we thank you that you also 
not just have saved us from the penalty of our sins at the day of judgment, but you also invite us into this new life, this new calling. You expand our vision of our lives and you give us purpose and meaning that goes on beyond our earthly lives. You call us into the field that is ripe for harvest. You make us workers in the field. You make us fishers of men. You allow us to partner with you in ministry. You've made us ambassadors of your own. God, thank you for that great high and holy calling. And God, I just pray for all of us here today that are followers of Christ, that you, Holy Spirit, would infuse in our hearts a deeper sense of responsibility and excitement about the great call that you've given to us. That we would be faithful followers of yours, Jesus, and that we would be out making fisher, or being fishers of men and making disciples of others. So Holy Spirit, help us with that. Realign our perspective here this morning. We ask all of this now in Jesus' name. Amen.